0: It can be challenging as a parent because we have these thoughts in our head, like, why can't he just, you know, fill in the blank. In my case, like, why can't he just get himself dressed? Like, how many times do I have to ask him to get his shirt and his pants on? And we have these ideas that they should be able to do something by some time. And, you know, those shoulds just are not helpful. Welcome to the Parenting ADHD Podcast, where
1: I share insights and strategies on raising kids with ADHD straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, ADHDaholic, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I'm so excited today to be talking to Julie King, who co-authored How to Talk When Kids Won't Listen, and you may have read the book How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk, which is kind of a classic in parenting now, and this is somewhat similar, and I'll let Julie tell us all about that. Thank you for being here. I'm really excited to have this conversation together and to dive into some information about your new book.
0: Will you start by introducing yourself? Let us know who you are and what you do. Sure, so yes, as you mentioned, I am the co-author of a new book, How to Talk When Kids Won't Listen, which I wrote with my very good friend, Joanna Faber. We also co-authored another book, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen. That's a survival guide to life with children ages two to seven. She and I actually met when we were babies. And our mothers became very good friends, and her mother is the co-author of the book you mentioned, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. She and my mother were good friends, and they were studying with Chaim Gannat, a child psychologist, and experimenting on her and me and our siblings. So we were really (laughs) guinea pigs for this approach. And we went through nursery school all the way through high school together, and then we went our separate ways. And when I had my first child, I started listening to how other people were talking to their kids. And I thought, hmm, they don't seem to know some of these tools that I learned sort of through osmosis and then through reading Adele's books. And so I started leading parenting workshops for the parents of my son's preschool. And then other people heard about it and it sort of snowballed into a career. And in the meantime, I was having my three kids. So I have, now I have a 30-year-old who has sensory processing issues that were not diagnosed till he was about one and a half. He had a bunch of developmental delays and had a mm-hmm. lot of early intervention. And I mentioned this cause I know your audience is particular audience with various issues. So I yes. want, want you to know about my kids. So that was my first child my second one, who is now 27, was also born looking like there were some differences and he was eventually diagnosed with, well mm-hmm. with Asperger's which is now considered an autism spectrum disorder. Mm-hmm. And then I had my third child, a girl who is now 23. And I took her to the developmental pediatrician because I thought that's what you do in my family, mm. yeah. <laughs> but she is a normally typically developing child. So I had quite a range. So over the years I've been doing a lot of workshops. I work one-on-one with parents and a lot of people in those years, those early years said, you know, we really love this approach and it's really great. And we need more examples and more stories. Um, for little kids. So that's why we wrote the How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen book. And after that book came out and that became a bestseller, we started hearing from parents all over the U.S. and all over the world, people in Russia and Singapore and South Africa and Mm. France and just all over. And it really spoke to a lot of people and they had more questions. Like, what do I do in this situation? And so at one point we decided, well, we need to take some of these questions and the answers we were giving and turn that into another book. So our new book addresses what I think of as a lot of the hot topics that parents face when they're raising children. How do you deal with the fighting? What do you do about homework? How do you manage screen time? That's been a huge issue this past Mm -hmm. year you know, and I could go on and on. So, um, so that's the book and sort of in a very brief nutshell, that's how I got into doing the work that I do now.
1: And it's so we were talking earlier before we started the first book from your friend's mother and her co-author were just a life-changing read for us. It made so much sense and I recommend it and have been for years to parenting clients. And So I was so excited when I heard about this new book, because I feel like a lot of parents of kids with ADHD or autism or other challenges feel like their kids won't listen. (laughs) You know, we feel like we are not being heard. And sometimes we feel like it's intentional when so often I think it's not. And so I thought maybe we could start by talking about sort of the premise of getting kids engaged with us so if they're not listening or we feel like they won't listen to us what are sort of the maybe key factors or foundations to
0: creating better interactions so let me touch on three okay (laughs) one one is that we need to have a, a basic connection with our kids if the only thing they hear from us all day long is, no, put that down, honey. No, you know, it's time to turn on the, you know, the Zoom camera for your class or get your coat on. It's time to go. If if that's all they hear all day long, you know, they're going to dread hearing anything from mm-hmm. us, right? If we start to approach them, they're going to think, oh no, here she goes again with another demand, another command. Yeah. So establishing that connection, having that fundamental relationship with our kids is so important. And in my experience, raising kids who are differently wired, there's a lot that we need to have that make them do. You know, with my, my kids had a lot of therapies and, and activities that we did with them to sort of enrich them and help them. It involved a lot of put the book down, we have to get in the car, let's get going sort of thing. So it's really important that they still feel like we have that, that basic connection with them. And one of the things we talk about in, in our books is the importance of joining them in their world, doing something with them that they find interesting or en- enjoyable. And, you know, that sounds so simple, but I know that that can be really challenging. I had a mom in one of my workshops who had a little boy with autism. And what he wanted to do was crawl into his tiny little one-person tent... With his iPad and play this bubble game that he loved in silence and she would just leave him alone And figured, you know, there's no way that he'll connect with me around that And after we had a session of talking about the importance of connecting with our kids around something that's interesting to them She went over to him while he was doing this little bubble game in his little tent And she kind of scratched at it It was one of these fabric tents and she said she scratched at very quietly because he was very sensitive to sound and She just said can I watch? And he actually nodded at her and let her watch, which was in and of itself, you know, a step forward. Yeah. And then she said, can I play with you? And he said, yes. Mm. And he showed her how to play. And she kind of stuck her head in this little tent. And they played this bubble game. And she said she realized that she had always been trying to pull him out of the tent and get him to play with her. And sort of these, you know, appropriate activities where he would learn something. And the value of going to him and saying, this is what he's interested in and I can show interest in what he's doing and I can join him in his world was a really profound experience for her. So that's one tip. And and I don't mean to make it sound like it's so simple because I know that my experiences with a lot of parents of kids on the autism spectrum, for example, they have these strong interests that they want to talk about all the time, you know, trains or whatever it is. And we get tired of talking about trains But it's really helpful to find some time when we can get curious about what's interesting about it to them and let them share with us what's going on for them so that's my first tip love it my second tip is around acknowledging what's going on for them so let's say we are now trying to get them to go to their speech therapy appointment and they have no interest in going because they're in the middle of doing something you know what we want to do is is to say come on let's go let's you know hurry up put it down you know you have to go it can be really helpful to acknowledge, you're just not in the mood to go right now. I wish that we could just freeze time so you could stay and finish this game. It's so unfortunate that you know, <laughs> these appointments happen and we can't just put a pause on life. Mm-hmm. So acknowledging what's going on for them, acknowledging their feelings, putting into words what they're experiencing can be enormously helpful. I'll tell you another story. I was working with a mom who had two children One of them was a little bit older, he was, I think, eight, and then she had a younger one who was a preschooler who didn't have a lot of expressive language. And her older one was a typically developing child who had a friend over and he was playing in the backyard. And the little one, who really needed much more supervision, was inside the house and he started banging on the door, clearly wanting to go outside. And she was trying to get dinner started and she didn't really have time to take him outside. She said normally what she would do is just pretend she didn't know what he wanted and ignore him and try to say, come on over here, honey, let's, you know, let's play with something and try to get him engaged in the kitchen and pretend she didn't know that he wanted to go outside. After she had been exposed to this idea of putting into words how a child feels, she actually put into words what he was trying to say when he was banging on the door, which was, ah, you see your brother playing outside. You want to go outside with him. You don't want to stay inside and play. And he calmed down mm. and she said, the problem is I have to get dinner started first before we can go outside. What do you want to do while I'm getting ready? And to her surprise, he came over to the kitchen and took out some of the plastic containers and started playing with them. So that second idea of putting it towards how our kids are feeling, really acknowledging what's going on for them, it, sometimes it's counterintuitive. We think, as she thought, if I say out loud that he wants to go outside, then it's just going to make it worse. Then he's going to be even more frustrated. But in fact, when you deny a child's feelings and say, no, it's not time, you, you don't really need to go outside, honey, come on over here. Then he feels like you don't get it. You don't understand. And a lot of kids will escalate. They'll start pounding and kicking the door mm-hmm. and shouting. So that's the, the second So idea. empathy.
1: It's a lot of empathy, which is so powerful. Yes. And I think as we all do, kids want to be seen and heard. They want to be acknowledged what they're going through. Yes, And so, yeah, that's a big one. It's true.
0: You're right. It's true for all people. We parents want somebody to understand what we're going through. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's hard to think about what's going on for the child because we're juggling so many conflicting needs and and it's hard to to sort of take a breath and think, okay, what's going on for my child? If we can do that, it can actually help our kids regulate. It can help them de-escalate and it can make them feel more cooperative. Mm -hmm.
1: Definitely. It's very collaborative that way. So they feel like they're a part of it rather
0: than just being told what to do or not to do. Yeah. Yeah. So of course we can't just focus on our kids' feelings because sometimes we need them to do things that they are deeply uninterested in doing. Yes. (laughs) You know, kids really don't care about being on time. They don't really care about cleaning up. Most of them, most of the time, let's put it that way. And so when we want them to do things that they don't want to do, it seems like the most direct and efficient way to get them to do things is to tell them no honey put that down come upstairs brush your teeth to a child it feels like i'm being ordered around and kids want to have a say in what they do and how they do it so that strategy can often backfire kids will dig their heels in they'll say no or they'll just cross you know they'll just refuse or they'll pretend they didn't hear you (laughs) yeah so we have a whole host of tools and strategies that parents and teachers can use to make kids feel more cooperative to make them feel like they want to do these things that we want them to do so i'll give you one example is to be playful with kids and you really need to know your child on this one what's what tickles their fancy or what kind of thing they like Um, one of my favorite examples is you know with little kids and we're trying to get their shoes on and they're running away or giggling or just not wanting to cooperate and instead of saying, hey, sit down, do, don't do you dare kick me uh-huh. on, you know, you are sitting still while I put your shoe on. Like that sort of talk where we think oh, I'm going to get tough and they're going to do it. And that can, you know, often just makes things yeah. worse. They just become more uncooperative. So one of my favorite playful ways, um, playful approaches is to make an inanimate object talk. And in this case, I would make this shoe talk like, I feel so empty and cold. I need a foot uh-huh. in me. Uh-huh. You know, and a lot of little kids cannot resist a talking shoe. Yeah. But because we're talking to your particular audience, I want to mention that there are a lot of kids, especially kids who are on the spectrum, who are very concrete thinkers, who know that shoes don't talk and they won't like it. And they'll say, Mommy, the shoe doesn't talk. And if that doesn't work for your kid, I say, you know, use another strategy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's so
1: true. Sometimes they are so literal that things like that just don't work for them. It reminds me, I had a speaker at our Happy Mama retreat one year, a local psychologist, and she said, talk to the peas. Whenever things are getting crazy in the house, everybody is intense and you just need a break in it, open the freezer and talk to the peas. Ah. It's the same concept. And, like, how do you not laugh when your mom was just angry and you're screaming at her and suddenly she opens the freezer like a crazy person and starts having a conversation with the peas. Like, you know, it, it has to break the ice most of the time. And I think that's what, what you're it. getting toward, too, is you know, just find a way to make them laugh.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's not all about laughter. Like my son, who when it was time for him to change his clothes, he could very much be of the mood of, yeah, I'm going to go get dressed. And he'll wander off to his room, get distracted by a piece of dust or whatever was on his (laughs) way, and completely forget what he was doing. You know, by the time he gets to his room, he's sort of looking around, (laughs) forgetting where he was going. And one of the things I did when I realized that this was an issue was I made a list, and I wrote down, you know, shirt, underpants, pants, socks. And when I first did this with him, I actually put the list on the kitchen table where I was sitting and I said, this is for you. Let's see if you can do these four things. Let's start with the first one, the the shirt. You wanna go see if you can find your shirt in your room and put it on? So he ran off to his room with this idea in his head, oh, I'm just gonna do my shirt. Mm -hmm. And he put his shirt on and he ran back and I said, let's see what's next on the list. So I had broken it down into steps. And if I had given him the whole list to start, it would have been overwhelming. But just to start with the shirt, that was something he could focus on and and do. And then he came back and he saw the underpants he ran off and did his underpants he came back and, you know, then did the same thing for the pants and the socks. And eventually I did that a number of times before I said, you know, I think we could put this list, we could tape it to the wall of your room and you could look at it in your room. And you know, of course he felt great. Cause now he was getting dressed all, all by himself <gasps> and he'd come out and I'd say, you did it. You have your shirt on. I, I see your pants. I'd see your socks. I bet your underpants is hiding under there. I can't even see it, you know. And he stood real tall like he had done it. So it was a win for him. It was a win for me because, you know, I didn't have to actually walk him into his room and remind him what to do.
1: Right, right. But it was a big win for him. You know, you're adjusting yeah. so that he could be successful. Yeah. And of course, when kids feel confident and competent, they do well. You know, I talk all the time about we have to feel good to do good. Exactly. And which feels better? You know, the excitement of running back and forth, and your mom is helping, and everybody is feeling calm and rational, and it's going well, or, you know, mom following you around and begging you to brush your teeth and, you know, get your yep. stuff done. So, yeah, really just setting them up to be successful at tasks really does help with that interaction between parent and
0: child and that relationship in general. It can be challenging as a parent because we have these thoughts in our head, like, why can't he just, Mm -hmm. you know, fill in the blank. In my case, like, why can't he just get himself dressed? Like, how many times do I have to ask him to get his shirt and his pants on? Yeah. And we have these ideas that they should be able to do something by some time. And, you know, those shoulds just are not helpful. And I learned that, especially with a child whose developmental journey was it didn't follow a pattern that my other kids had and it doesn't help to to compare so um i think if we can notice that we're doing that to ourselves i mean that's why we get so frustrated as parents as we think why can't they just or how many times do i have to say this kids need a lot of practice and reminder before they can do things and we also have to remember that a child who can get himself dressed in the morning when he's got a lot of energy might not be able to get himself dressed in the afternoon when he's tired. Right. And that's true for so many things. It goes back to that, acknowledging what's going on for them. Yeah. Too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So let's shift gears, I think, for a minute and talk about the times that are super hard when our kids just really feel like they're absolutely not willing to listen to us. We need them to do something they're avoiding or putting up a wall, or maybe they've gotten intense or aggressive parents are always wondering, what do I do when it's really bad? What what happens? And a lot of what we've talked about so far is the work that you do outside of those times. So those times happen less often and you can maybe manage them a little bit easier. But when we're really engaged in butting heads
0: with our kids, what helps at those times? Well, I'm sure this is just a very theoretical question, but I'm just wondering if you have any specific example of A time when you were in a situation like this, because then we can sort of get our teeth into it and analyze it. I can give you some very concrete ideas.
1: Yeah. So, for example, my son, when he was, I would say, 12, 11, 12, Mm -hmm. he would get stuck a lot and he would be very stuck for hours. So he maybe wanted a new Lego set. And I had to say, you know, we can't do that today. And not even a no, because by then I had learned mm-hmm. to try to say yes as much as possible, right? Yeah, and and that helps. And so it wasn't a concrete no; it was a yes when or yes later. Mm-hmm. And he was just because of those autistic characteristics and his little brain very stuck on having that Lego set, having it in his hands right now. There was no other time that could possibly work out for him. And the more he begged and pleaded and tried to bargain with me and negotiate, of course, the more frustrated I would get. And then, you know, I'm trying to make dinner and he just won't stop. Right. And and I'm trying to get past it to be able to move on, to move forward And this one time in particular, it was probably three hours that he would not leave my side. He could not get past it. He was just so stuck. And I understood that, you know, cognitively, but emotionally, I was getting super frustrated, right? And so sometimes voices were being raised. And Mm -hmm. honestly, I don't remember how it finally worked out. Interestingly enough, I remember the pain. I don't remember (laughs) what happened that that worked out in, you know, six or seven years. So... That's not surprising. But, um, you know, what could we have done maybe in that moment? And so many of our parents, too, they just get into these yelling matches almost. You know, if your kid's yelling at you as a human being, we're wired to respond in kind. We have to work really hard not to yell back at them, to stay calm and so when everybody's intense like that over any number of things, you know, getting something they wanted and not being able to shift gears or, you know, it could boil down to parents wanting kids to do homework and kids having a hard time with it and not wanting to do it. And,
0: you know, those are just some really common examples. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You, you put me right back there. with the, It's a great example. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, of course, what we want to say is, honey, uh, you know, I already asked and answered. Some people say, I say I asked and answered. Mm-hmm. Um But very rarely does a child who's persisting say, oh, you know, that's true. I did ask you that and you did answer it and so I'll let that go, right? It doesn't happen. I mean, if that that worked, I wouldn't have had to write a book, right? Right, right, right. (laughs) We'd both be out of a job. Um, which would be great, you know, if we, <laughs> we need to have these yes. conflicts, but it is yes. part of it is part of life. So you know what we want to say is, you know, asked and answered, or uh, you know, we can't do that today, honey, you know, we'll get it some other time. I don't want to hear about it again. You have to stop. Like all of those things are what we want. And sometimes with some kids, that kind of thing will help. But for a child who's persisting, I would go back to thinking about what is he feeling? Can I put into words what's going on for him so he knows that I get it? Not that I'm going to give him what he wants, but Mm -hmm. I understand how strongly he wants that Lego set. I'd say, you really want that Lego set? It sounds so cool and you know exactly what you want to do with it. Maybe I'd ask him, what would you do with it? What are you going to do with it when you get it? What are you going to build? And I might also say, it's really hard to hear that you have to wait. You don't want to wait. So I might acknowledge that feeling. And I'm going to throw out a bunch of ideas. You wouldn't necessarily use all of these. yeah. But I also might say, I think we need to write down what you want. Mm-hmm. And we need to think about when we can actually, you know, we can't go today because so we don't have the time and tomorrow it's going to be blah, blah, blah. But, you know, Saturday, maybe we need to write this down on the calendar for your son who's 12. Maybe I'd ask him to write down, you know, what he wants and why he wants it and what he's going to do with it so that he feels like he can express it. In a quieter way than him nagging at you. Yeah. You know, and then you can read it back to him. So, those are all various ways to, you know, I think of it as acknowledging his feelings, acknowledging what he wants, putting it into words, rather than saying what he hears is, I hear what you want to know, you can't have it. Right. Yeah. And that just makes him mad. Yeah. So, he needs to know, ah, boy, you know what I wish? I wish that we had a little Lego factory right here and we could just press a button and we could create that Lego set, that would be so cool. My son, who's on the spectrum, he loved to do that kind of fantasy. He'd come home and he'd complain about homework or school or whatever, Mm -hmm. and I'd say, I bet when you grow up, you know, you would create a school that didn't have homework and it wouldn't start so early in the morning. It wouldn't go for so long, like all his complaints. He would like to fantasize like that. Yeah. All my kids like to do that actually. So if you have a child who likes to think about how they would create the world if they were in charge, Go with that game. That's a lot easier game to play as a parent oh, yeah. than, no, honey, stop. I, I, You already said it. That's enough. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> there are going to be some times when you're going to say to yourself, I need to take care of myself right now. I hear how much you want that Lego set. I need to have a break from thinking about it. So I'm going to go into my room or I'm going to go for a walk or what, what you're able to do. When my kids were very young, I would go into the bathroom. Yes. I would take the baby and <laughs> I would just go in there for a minute and take my deep breaths because I felt like I just need to get away. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I have to say
1: your idea of writing it down has been so helpful in so many different struggles like that, that we've come into over the years lots of school anxiety and avoidance. And if I wrote down his concerns, it felt like it was real that I heard him and that I was going to take action, where if we just had a conversation about it, he could not get to a place where he could get to school. It had to be That I really made it very real that I was listening and that I heard Mm -hmm. him and understood, and that I was making a plan and I was gonna do something for him. So, you know, writing it down on the calendar is a great idea, especially for any of our kids with time blindness, which still will probably feel like forever to them, but at least there's a visual, tangible thing to sort of latch onto. And, you know, the other thing that I have learned to use as well is to say, you know, I wanna help you but I can't help you like this. I need to take a break. You need to take a break. We need to calm down so that we can have a real conversation about it. And then we can find a solution. Mm -hmm. Um, And as my son got older, that worked a lot more, obviously, than when he was super young. But that has been really, really helpful. Because I'm not saying that what he thinks and feels doesn't matter to me. Right. I'm just saying that we all have to take a breath and be calm so that we can problem solve. So we can think more clearly, right? Right, yeah. right. I mean, there's there's biology behind that. When we're right. super emotional, right. our thinking brain is cut off from access, right? Yeah. And really teaching him that too, that there was science behind it. This is why. It's not me you know, saying, I don't want to talk to you. It's that our brains really can't do this right now. And I found that really helpful too in in a lot of those moments.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. You're reminding me of another moment I had with my son. Something had happened at school and he came home so distraught that he couldn't really talk. He was crying and he said, the the, 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 the teacher, you know, it was going on and on like this. Like he could, he was barely able to get a breath and um I, I did not know what had happened. And of course my anxiety is going up like thinking, oh my God, what happened? <laughs> you know? And I needed him to calm down enough to tell me, but I knew if I just said, honey, calm down, calm down, take a deep breath. He wouldn't, he couldn't in that moment. He was so consumed and overwhelmed with this upset. And it's very hard as a parent to be with a child, your own child, when they're that upset. Mm-hmm. I, I can attest from personal experience, and one of the things I did was I grabbed a pad of paper and I started writing down every word he said which th- as I say there was just one word at a time right <laughs> so I wrote down the and then I wrote down teacher and you know said oh. and and then he would you know sob and cry and I would read the teacher said and and by reading it out loud it actually helped him to be able to take another breath and say another word and start to calm down and it was incredibly helpful for him But honestly, it was incredibly helpful for me because I wanted to feel like I was doing something Mm -hmm. and I needed a way to manage my own anxiety that I wanted to like say, just tell me already, you know, what was it? I had this, you know, and, and it was something that was incredibly upsetting to him. It it wasn't, you wouldn't put this down as, you know, we need to report the teacher to the authorities or anything, but it was upsetting to him. And um writing it down was very powerful for both of us in that moment.
1: Yeah, it was something for you to do when you couldn't really yeah. you know, fix it. It was something for you to focus on that was helpful. That was yeah. just such a great idea.
0: And I think that we as parents I, I think this applies to all parents, but especially to parents of differently wired kids. There are times when we need to figure out how to manage our own feelings because they can get in the way of helping our kids. I'm thinking also of just trying to get my son's attention to ask him a question. And he could hyper focus as many of these kids can. Mm-hmm. And if I came in and just started saying, hey, Rashi, what do you want for lunch? He would completely ignore me. And that was one of the things I just felt like, ah, yeah. just need an answer. You know, don't ignore me. But I learned that I can't just walk in and start talking. And he was very sensitive to, you know, sudden noises. So, I, you know, I didn't want to startle him by, you know, pounding on the door or something. So I'd knock very quietly and I'd say, Hey, Rashi. So he would hear his name and then I would pause. Mm-hmm. I would wait until he looked up and, or until it looked like maybe he was listening, that I'd caught his attention and I'd say, I have a question for you when you're ready. Yeah. And that when you're ready, I think was really critical in showing him respect because he was in the middle of his own deep thoughts. And let him know that I'm there, that I have something, but I'm going to wait until he's ready. And then I would wait until he looked up. And, you know, these were the days before cell phones, I have to tell you. So yeah. I would I would stand there and I would actually count to myself so that I could <laughs> say to myself, OK, I made it to 20 <laughs> before he looked up. Now I probably would take, a you know, something to read or something <laughs> to do. But, you know, then he would look up and then I would say, did you want turkey sandwich or did you want peanut butter and jelly for lunch? And he would tell me. But if I had just walked in and said, you know, from the get-go, which do you want? He would have completely, I, I don't know if it's, no, if it's fair to say, ignore me, because I don't think he would have heard me. Right. Exactly. And sometimes parents say to me, like, you know, how do I get my kids to listen? Like, they don't hear, you know, they don't listen to me. And I say, do, do they actually know that you're talking to them? With my son, if I also put my hand on his shoulder, but it had to be a firm touch, not some light thing that would startle him. Some kids, you know, they do well if you touch them first and then talk. So you really have to know your own kid. There's another principle of all of this. Yeah. It's funny.
1: I literally had the exact conversation about telling your child that you want to talk to them about something when they're ready with a coaching client an hour ago. (laughs) (laughs) We had that exact conversation about, yeah, Yeah. he answered you, but he didn't think it through. And then he realized later it was a problem, his answer. Mm -hmm. And so give it to him on his own time. So he has some control. But also, when he comes to you, he's engaged with you. He's listening, and you can really have that conversation and have it be meaningful, and that's so funny. It's such a big strategy, though. It's very, very helpful, because giving kids that sense of control alone.
0: We all know what it feels like to be interrupted. You know, we've all had that experience of I'm in the middle of writing an email, and my husband comes and interrupts me, and I think, ah, no, I'm going to forget what I'm Mm -hmm. going to Like, don't just start talking you know, we have that experience as an adult. So that's what's going on for our kids also. And I I always think it's helpful to be able to relate to what it feels like to be them in that experience. Yeah,
1: that's so, so important. Thank you so much, Julie, for being here and sharing some of your insights and strategies and wisdom with everyone listening. I know we have to wrap up now. We could talk about this all day, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) But these are some great starter strategies for parents. And of course, we encourage them to read the book as well. For everyone listening, you can get links to both books and anything else that we've mentioned in this episode, as well as website and that sort of thing in the show notes, which are located at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 139 for episode 139. Again, I just want to thank you so much. It was an honor to have you on the podcast and really share some of this wisdom with our listeners.
0: Thank you so much. And I think what you're doing and the resource you're providing is just so helpful for parents. I wished I had something like this when my kids were little.
1: Mm, Which is exactly why I do it because I wish I had something (laughs) like this when my kids were little. It's so true. Well, thank you again. With that, we'll end the episode. I'll see everyone next time. Thanks for joining me on the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses, Parent Coaching and Mama Retreats at parentingadhdandautism.com.